As you get settled back in there, would you please find Ruth chapter 4? Ruth 4. After we spent almost a year going through Revelation, it seems like this book of Ruth has gone very quickly. And today is our last verse-by-verse study here in the book of Ruth. So find Ruth chapter 4, please. And when you've found it, please stand to let me know you've found it, and I will read our passage together. So Ruth chapter 4, stand when you find it, and I will read it for us. Please follow along as I read. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold... The near kinsman of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the near kinsman, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead on his inheritance. And the near kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was an attestation in Israel. Therefore, the near kinsman said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to raise up the name of the dead on his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses of witnesses this day. And the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, And she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a near kinsman. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. And became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying. There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse. The father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. 
Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are so thankful to have your word in language that we can understand, in accessible form that we can read. And we thank you, Lord, for this book, for the book of Ruth and all that it teaches us in its few chapters. Lord, we ask for your understanding this morning. This is familiar territory to many, and yet we pray that you'll give us fresh eyes and fresh ears this morning, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law, that we would have ears to hear what you are speaking to us. We know that you send your word forth to accomplish your purposes and that will not return void. So we ask, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts today. We know that it is alive, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword and opens us up. So may it do that today so that we would become more like Jesus Christ, your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. This is familiar to many of you, but there may be someone who has not read the book of Ruth or hasn't read it recently or hasn't been here with us. So for the sake of everyone, those who've been here the whole time and those who haven't, let's do just a little bit of review as we start out here. There are three main characters in the book of Ruth. There are many characters listed, lots of names given, but the three that we care most about are Naomi. She is the mother, wife, mother-in-law and she was first mentioned at the very beginning of the book, verse 2 of chapter 1. Ruth becomes her daughter-in-law. Ruth is a Moabitess, and she also appeared in chapter 1. And then Boaz is related to Naomi, specifically related through marriage. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, is somehow related, we don't know exactly how, to Boaz. And he is a wealthy man, he is a man of good character. And we'll talk more about him today. He is central to chapter 4. So they are the three main characters for us to watch, and there's some big ideas, some words that represent big ideas, key concepts of this book of Ruth, and I've shared them with you each week, but they are redemption, that is prevalent in this chapter today, return, the Hebrew word shub that we talked about, that appears a lot, particularly in chapters one and two, but we'll see it again today, glean, that was all about chapter two, when the poor of the land could receive what the reapers had left for them. Then kindness, that is God's kindness to us, God's kindness to the people we're reading about, as well as we read of Naomi and Ruth, their relationship and Ruth's kindness to Naomi and later Ruth's kindness to Boaz. We'll see that uh, again today, how that played out from last week when we looked at chapter three. And then the idea of providence. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. But we see in this book, even though there aren't a lot of statements about God did this or God oversaw that, he is. He's arranging what we would call coincidence or chance and allowing all of it as he orchestrates it to work together for his good and his glory and the good of those in the story. There is, I believe, an overarching theme to each chapter, and you can study it on your own, and if you have different ideas, that's fine with me, but this is what I have been using to teach this book. Number one, Chapter one was about returning. Second chapter about reaping. Third chapter about redeeming. Fourth chapter about resting. And you could interchange those or you could even put for chapter three, redeeming and resting, and chapter four, resting and redeeming, however you want to do it. But along with that, I have offered you some idea of who God is, what we learn about God, what are we we're reminded about concerning God in this book. And I've offered you four statements over the past few weeks 
One is that God is the God of the empty and the full. Think of Naomi for a moment. We don't know all the circumstances that led her to leave with her husband and two sons, but there was a famine in the land. That's what the book tells us. There was a famine in the land. Circumstances were not good. Circumstances may have been dire for them. And they decided it was better to go to Moab. Probably not a good decision. We have no record that Elimelech, the father and husband of the family, was praying and asking for God's guidance or that God told him to do this, but that's what he did. That's what the family did. And they arrived in Moab. And not long after, it seems, after they got to Moab, Elimelech died. So now Naomi has two sons, but she's a widow. At some time after that, we don't know exactly when, but they were there a total of 10 years, even though they just went for a short time. They stayed at least 10 years that we know of. And during that time, her two sons married women from Moab. Again, probably not a good idea. Moab was enemy territory. The Moabites had mistreated the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and were trying to go into the promised land. They said, no, you can't come through here. No, you can't have any of our water. No, you can't have any of our crops. We will not even sell anything to you. Just stay out. And for that reason, God put a sort of curse on them. And we've talked about some of those things. But there is Naomi. She's lost her husband in that he has died. Her sons have married Moabite women, and then they die. So now she is a widow indeed. She's one who has lost all of her earthly family, certainly everyone who's available to her there in Moab. And we, again, don't know the details. But God worked in her heart that she decided... I'm going back. I'm going back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. She heard that God had visited his people. So she says, I'm going back. And Ruth and Orpah, that's the other daughter-in-law, said, we'll go too. And Naomi began a series of arguments. No, don't come with me. No, it's going to be better for you. What Naomi was probably thinking is, it's going to be very hard for you to find a husband or any stability or security if you come back with me because other Israelites aren't likely to marry Moabites. It's much better if you just go back to your families. And that's what she was encouraging to do, in kindness to them, I believe. So she's saying, no, go back, and Orpah eventually listens, but Ruth makes that amazing statement in, chap it, in the end of chapter one to say, I've made my decision. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. God had done a work in Ruth's heart. Whatever she saw of the God of Naomi, the God of the Israelites, the one true God, Jehovah, she was willing to turn her back on everything she knew, her family, her false gods, and she was going with Naomi to care for Naomi. So there are two things going on here. Ruth has made a decision to believe in the one true God and worship him, and Ruth has made a decision to care for her mother-in-law, who is a widow with no other family, to care for her. Amazing kindness. Amazing loyalty. But when Naomi came back, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. Call me bitter because the hand of the Lord has gone out and afflicted me and I, he's dealt bitterly with me. She said, I went out full and I came back empty. And what I am reminding you of right now is what I told you then when we covered that chapter God is the God of the full and the empty. On your best day, on your worst day, when things are going super well, when things are the worst ever in your life, God is still God, and he is still in control, and he is still interested in the good of his people. 
We know Romans 8.28. It's hard to hear sometimes when you're on the receiving end of it and you're the one in the trial. But we know that it's true that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He is going to bring about our good and his glory. Then that second chapter was about reaping. And the harvesters were out there and they were doing their thing in the barley field and Ruth just happened, we know God was intervening, she just happened to go to the field of Boaz who was a close kinsman and he treated her so kindly. She was of foreign ancestry. She was a Moabitess. She was a widow. She was obviously poor. That's the reason she was there gleaning. And he was kind to her and he even said, come have lunch with us and, and sit near me and here's, here's a generous portion of the best food we have to offer and she had so much she had a take-home box that she took to her mother-in-law and he sent her home well provided for because he told his men not to mess with her and told his women to let her glean with them and even be among the reapers so she got as much as she could carry just about and God provided in that way Chapter 3 was redeeming. That's what we covered last week. And in it, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're seeing that God is a refuge and a reward. Boaz talked to Ruth and said, Blessed are you. You have been kind, and God, the one who you have come to trust, under his wings you have come to trust, he is providing for you. He is a reward to you. May he bless you. Pouring out blessings, that is typical of Boaz as you read this book. And even this one who is a foreigner, even this one who is a widow, even this one who is poor, God is the God of the insignificant. And when you think nobody sees you and nobody cares, God sees you. God knows your name. God knows your circumstances, and he cares. And he is a refuge and a reward. You can hide yourself in him. You can find safety and comfort and a reward. He will provide for you. What you need, he will provide. And then we saw last week, God is the God of rest and redemption. Rest in the sense of security. And what we think of as rest, both. Provision. And then redemption. We're going to talk more about that today. Redemption. Being bought back. Boaz is the near relative. He is the kinsman redeemer. And he is not going to stop until he takes care of business. Some key passages, some extra credit reading for you. If you want to review the law of the kinsman redeemer, that's in Leviticus chapter 25. If you want to look into leveret marriage that we'll talk about some today, that's in Deuteronomy 25. And one person said the purpose of these laws was to preserve the name and protect the property of families in Israel. That's the heart of God that's going into these regulations that they followed. Now, those of you who know this chapter and know this book well, how do I sum up what I'm trying to say today? And so I began Friday or Saturday as I was finishing my study for the week, praying about, Lord, what do you want me to say? I, I try to get things into just a few main points, often just one main idea that I'd like you to take with you. And as I thought about that, prayed about that, and honestly, when it came to me, was in the shower, uninterrupted thinking, you're mowing the lawn, you're running, you're working out, you're in the shower, sometime things come to you. And that's what happened to me. So the verse that came to me is in Psalm 103. I'm going to read these first five verses 
for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who redeems, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. These are the benefits that he's talking about in verse two. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, reward, crowning, his loving kindness, his tender mercies, who satisfies, satisfaction, satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So I underlined for you the thought that just came to me in the shower. What I believe is the main point that God wants me to get across this morning. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who redeems your life from destruction. Thinking about redemption, that is the line. It's a, it's a line of a song that I sang years ago that popped back in my head. And I know it's from Psalm 103. Looked it up, it's verse four. Who redeems your life from destruction. And you may be saying, destruction? There's not a whole lot of destruction. There's not a whole lot of mayhem and devastation and annihilation in the book of Ruth. And there's not. But I believe that there was potential destruction. There was certainly trial and affliction. And for that reason, the main point I'm trying to get across, what I want you to remember today is God redeems our lives from destruction. God redeems our lives from destruction. So with that in mind, let's go to, actually I'm going to go to the last verse of chapter 3 and move verse by verse through chapter 4 fairly quickly, I think. Verse 18 says, Then she, that is Naomi, said, Sit still, my daughter, by that she means Ruth, her daughter-in-law, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man, Boaz, that's the man, will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So where we left our characters last week, Boaz is going into action. Boaz is going to take care of the situation. Ruth is supposed to sit still and wait. Wait on the Lord ultimately, but wait on Boaz to do what he's going to do. Here's what she doesn't know. She knows she may get married or at least know who her husband is by the end of the day, but she doesn't know who it is. She doesn't know who her husband will be because the kink that we found out about last week is that yes, Boaz is a near kinsman, but there is someone closer. There is someone with first right of refusal and he's got to work it out with that person. But he's going to take care of Ruth and Naomi. He's proven that. He's going to take care of both women and do his part, be a man of good character, but he doesn't know how it's going to turn out and they don't know how it's going to turn out. They didn't have chapter four. They hadn't read the rest of the story. So there's a lot of suspense here for the characters themselves. What he did, as one of my study Bibles says, is that Boaz met the challenge of taking the right action in the situation facing him. Sometimes that's all we can do. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Usually we don't know how it's going to turn out. But he did what was right. He took the right next step. And for him, that was going to the city gate. Let's look at verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. If you pay attention to these first few verses, you're going to read sit down, sat down a lot. And close relative. So Boaz went up to the gate and sat down. Why would he go there? Well, the gate at that time in that culture, it represented what we would think of as the town square, the town hall, the courthouse. Why does that matter? Well, he's taking his nearer kinsman to court. This is a court case. This is a legal situation. And he needs to take this person to court to get this matter straightened out. Furthermore, it's the gate. And it's not a gate like we envision a, a gate 
that swings on hinges. This would be, usually there was a wall surrounding a town or city, and in it, there was many, archaeologists have found as many as six compartments, six rooms in that wall in what we would call the gate. So that's where he is. He's going to meet with the other kinsmen and the witnesses we're going to see in just a minute in one of the chambers or meeting areas in the gate of the city. And because it's the gate in, and because it's the way in and out of the city, he knows at some point today that near kinsman is going to come. He's going to come by here. There's a very good chance he's going to come in or out today, and I'm going to catch him when he does. So he does, and God works that out. He's orchestrating it. This is providence once more. And he says, friend, come here. It's like saying so-and-so or John Doe. Uh, somebody said, hey, you're just the guy I was looking for. That's the idea. He doesn't call him by name. Do you think he knew his name? Oh, I think so. He knows he's closer in line, so he knows the name. It's possible that he's choosing not to say the name. It's also possible that the narrator under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, isn't giving us his name. Because what we're going to see here would bring about shame on the family of the person who's going to turn down his right of redemption. Verse 2, And he took ten men of the elders of the city, talking about Boaz, and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. The elders were the ones who witnessed transactions. They decided legal cases. And it seems probably that ten was a quorum. That was the number that he needed to be witnesses for the legal proceedings that were about to take place. Now, you probably can't see this, but in my notes, I highlighted in yellow all the times that redeem, redemption, close relative appear. Because that's all the same Hebrew word. It's either the verb or the noun. Redeem, redeem, buy it back, close relative. It's all the same thing. It's all over this passage. That is very much a key word in this section. But in verse 3, it says, Then he said to the close relative, whose name we don't know, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to her brother, our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now when it says Naomi has come back, that is our word shub, the return word that we've talked about. It's going to come up one more time before we finish with this chapter. And when it says that she sold, probably as some of your translations have it, it'd be better to say, has to sell. She is in need of selling. She is going to sell. She's about to sell this property. Why? Because she's a widow. She has no means of income. She needs the money. That's what is probably going on here. And when he says our brother, some of your translations say our relative Elimelech, don't know how they're related, but probably it's a very similar relation. Cousin, uncle, whatever. The way they're both related to Elimelech. And he sets out the case and says, Naomi is about to sell this land. You are closer than I am. You're the closest relative. Are you going to do anything about it? And he says, I will do this. Okay. Why do you think he was so willing to do it? Well, in their culture, their time, their place, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's a win-win situation for this guy, he thinks. Because Naomi, as we discussed, was probably in her 50s. She's past childbearing, so there, there's no leveret marriage angle to this to be concerned about. He receives the property that he buys. He takes care of Naomi. She passes away sometime in, in the coming years, and he adds her property, her estate, Elimelech's estate, to his holdings, his inheritance. So that seems easy. It's not going to pass back to a relative. Naomi can't have any more children. This is easy. 
So he says, I'll do it. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the one who's orchestrating all this. God is at work, providentially working. But Boaz is being pretty clever here because he brings up Naomi and doesn't mention Ruth yet. And he says, the, the near kinsman says, I'm going to do it. Count on me. I've got this. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess. He probably emphasized Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And all of a sudden we see an about face. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Why is he changing his tune? Why has he changed his mind? Well, there may be one or more of these ideas going on. One is that all of a sudden there are two widows to take care of. And maybe he couldn't afford to buy the land and care for these two widows. Maybe. Probably the, the more likely situation is that Ruth was young enough to bear children. And he knew, if I marry Ruth and we have children, the firstborn son is going to receive this land that I'm paying for right now. And instead of going to any other children we have, or any other children he had at that point, it's going to go to him. So I've got to buy it, and I don't get to keep it. It's going to go to the firstborn son between Ruth and me. So it's, at that point, a sacrifice. It's an expense that he's going to have to pay and not going to get much of a return on it, financially speaking. His concern is that some of his estate is going to transfer from his family, potentially, to the family of Elimelech. Now, what's interesting is that we don't know this guy's name. He's just Mr. So-and-so. Mr. What's-His-Face. We don't know his name. What is he concerned about here? I don't want to mar my inheritance. I want to keep my good name. Nobody knows his name today. Boaz was willing to sacrifice, give of himself doesn't care so much about the land, doesn't care so much about the money, loves Ruth, wants to provide for Ruth and Naomi. We know his name. His name is recorded in Scripture multiple places. 1 John 2.17 says, He who does the will of God abides forever. That's, that's what Boaz is doing here. He's doing the will of God, and his name lasts Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. The narrator is telling us at this point about customs that were in former times. That's another reason, back when we introduced the book in chapter 1, said this was probably written 100, 150, maybe more years than that after the events took place. Because he's having to explain to later generations how they used to do it. This custom had its origin in the idea that whatever land I tread on with the sole of my foot, sole of my shoe, my sandal, this is what I own. This is, I can walk my land. I possess it. It's mine. So the sandal represented, this is the sole of my foot. I step on, I walk on, I walk through what belongs to me. So if he is going to give that sandal, he's saying, I'm giving away my possession. This would be more like, in modern terms, signing a deed 
a warranty deed, or maybe we would need um, to have a document witnessed and notarized. Same idea, in front of the witnesses, the elders, he's going to take off his sandal if he's going to give the right of ownership away. Now, understand there's a big difference between my choosing to take off my sandal and hand it to you and having my sandal taken off. Because those of you, if you look it up in Deuteronomy 25, you're going to read that the woman, the widow, could bring this person to court. Remember, Ruth is the widow, or Naomi, could have come to court with this guy and said, come on, Buster, you got to marry me. And if you don't, here's what happens. If, he's, if he refuses, the elders would talk to him and say, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what the law requires. And if he says, no, I want no part of this. I don't want to marry her. Then what happened is that the woman removed his sandal and spat in his face. So this is a much more dignified way that they're doing this. Ruth and Naomi are nowhere to be seen, at least from the narrator, narrator's perspective. We don't know that they were there. But Boaz is there, and there's no spitting going on. And voluntarily, the, the nearer kinsman is giving his sandal to say, this is a done deal. I'm signing on the dotted line. Here you go. I'm not going to redeem it. You redeem it. That's what's happening here. Verse 8, therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, so he took off his sandal. And with that, he passes into anonymity. Nobody knows his name, nobody heard anything else from him in Scripture. Verse 9, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. He begins and ends his statement with that. You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You were witnesses this day. Side note, a little bit. Back in chapter 1, I told you, showed you the family tree, and Ruth is married to Malon. This is how we know that. And then we can assume, even though it's never stated, that Orpah is married to Chilion. He says here, I have acquired Ruth as my wife. If we had read only part of the story, chapter 1, chapter 2, Ruth was leaving her family, leaving her homeland, leaving everything she knew to come back with Naomi, knowing that the odds were very small that she would ever remarry, that she would ever find the security of that culture of being in a home, having a husband. And what has God done? beyond anything she could ask or think. He has done more than she could have imagined. Verse 11, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, what we see here is that the elders at the gate, the witnesses, do their part. They say, we are witnesses. That was required. But they add to that a blessing on Boaz and, by extension, Ruth, and a blessing on Naomi. Let's see how this plays out. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house. Ruth, when she first met Boaz, recognized, I'm a foreigner. I am not one of your servants. I'm not like one of your servants. She had a humble 
view of herself. But not only is Boaz wanting to marry her, these other Israelites are extending grace to her, recognizing her, oh yes, we are welcoming you into the community of God's people. May this woman be like, be like let your house be like the household of Rachel and Leah. What are they saying? Have a big family. May the Lord bless you with a big family. If you go back to Genesis, you can read about Rachel and Leah and their two handmaids. And through them, do you remember how many children there were? He had 12 sons and one daughter. Big family that God blessed Jacob with. Why else might they have brought up these two? Well, Rachel was buried nearby there in Bethlehem, on the road near Bethlehem. Leah was the mother of Judah by Jacob. And therefore, they had descended from. We know that from chapter 1, that Elimelech is from the tribe of Judah. Boaz has to have been from the tribe of Judah to be a relative of Elimelech. So they are from Judah. His mom was Leah. They say, may you prosper. May you have standing. And this word for prosper is similar to the word that we've looked at. We looked at for Mother's Day. We were talking about the fact that a virtuous woman, a virtuous wife, an excellent wife... That describes Ruth, just like it describes the woman found in Proverbs chapter 31. That same word is used earlier in chapter 2 to describe Boaz, a man of great wealth, a man of great valor, bravery, strength. And here it is one more time. May you prosper. May you experience valor, worth, ability, strength, blessing. Now, what about the house of Perez? What is this all about? Well, Boaz is a descendant, as we'll see at the end of this chapter, of Perez. Who's that? Perez is one of the two sons of Judah by Tamar. More we could say about that, and I might come back to it when we do the genealogy in a few minutes. There's also a reference here to offspring, and literally the word there is seed, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the seed. Ultimately, the Bible is a story about God and God's rescue plan for mankind after Adam and Eve sinned. How will things be reconciled? How will relationships be restored? How will a holy God be reconciled with sinful people? This is part of it. It's the promised seed. It's the Messiah. So this reference to the seed of Perez, of Rachel and Leah, all this is coming together to say, this is an important relationship. We're praying blessings on you that the Messiah might come through you. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now this is interesting. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Almost every time, not every time, but almost every time in the book so far, it's been Ruth the Moabite-s, depending on your translation, Moabite, Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess here becomes Ruth the wife of Boaz. A new start, a new identity. That, that also is something that God does. He's the God of fresh starts. And that's what she's seeing. Great blessing. And it says here, the Lord gave her conception. How long had she been married back in Moab? We don't know. Could be as much as 10 years. And at that time, and even today, having children is a blessing of the Lord. Grant, God granted conception, it says here. Allowed her to have a child. She had been barren, which was considered a curse at that time and in that culture. And up to 10 years with a husband, with no children. And now, 
a new start, a kinsman redeemer to be her husband, and God grants a child. There are only two times in this book of Ruth where the narrator attributes an action specifically to God. The first one was back when we read that God had provided food. That was chapter 1, verse 6. And now we have the provision of a son. God has not forgotten his people. He is still providing. He is providing for their needs. Related to this, I'd like to remind us that children are a gift from God. Here's Psalm 127. You may know this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Ultimately, children are a blessing. Planned, unplanned. They're a blessing. I realize if you have a two-year-old at home, then it may not feel all the time like it's a blessing, but it is a blessing. It says so here in the Bible that the fruit of the womb is a reward, and it is a reward certainly to Ruth and to Boaz. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, so change of speaker, change of recipient of this blessing. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Blessed be the Lord, another blessing, who has not left you this day. That's a good reminder. Who are they talking to? Naomi. What did Naomi say? The hand of the Lord is against me. Call me bitter. He has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, I came back empty. Oh, no, what are they describing here? He has not left you this day. Beloved, if you feel like God has forgotten about you, that he doesn't know where you are or what's going on in your life right now, please take heart. He has not left you this day. He still sees, he still knows, he still cares. He is still at work on your behalf, even when you can't see it. This says, he has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. What's interesting here is that Bible scholars don't attribute that to Boaz. We were talking about Boaz a minute ago. Boaz is Ruth's redeemer. This is describing someone else. Who? A child. The child born to Boaz and Ruth is going to be her Goel, her redeemer. One commentary says that as he grows up, he may restore her to her former happiness and be the stay and gladness of her old age. And that's what it says there. May he be to you a restorer of life. Back one more time to our term shub, return. Because literally this says, he who causes life to return. Did you feel dead, Naomi? Did you feel bitter? Did you feel like God had forgotten you? He's going to use this child to restore life back to you, to cause you to return to life. God is the God of resurrection. The Lord 
had brought her back empty, she said. This is fullness of life. When I was a senior in high school, my mom found out that she had breast cancer. And things were very different 30 years ago or so. And she didn't know what the outcome would be. And as she and my dad talked, they told us about this later, one of the first and biggest sadness, sadnesses of her heart was, I don't know whether I'm ever going to be a grandmother. I think I would have been a good grandmother. Now, those of you who don't already know, my mom is alive and well today, has survived, by God's grace, that cancer and another cancer, and, and she's doing well, and she has 13 grandchildren. But while she was in that trial, she did what I would encourage any of you to do. You're in a trial. You were despondent. Read the Psalms. God can handle our complaints. God can handle our emotions. He made us to be emotional creatures. And she found this in Psalm 128. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this is a little out of context. It wasn't written there for my mom particularly, but she took that as a promise of the Lord that she would get to see her children's children. At least two of my children have at least two grandchildren. That would make four. She has 13. God has blessed her richly. God blessed Naomi richly. In fact, my mom was here last week, and I asked her, have our grandchildren, have your grandchildren been a restorer of life to you? And she said, yes, that they had. Look at this. Your daughter-in-law loves you. Ruth's love for her daughter-in-law, for her mother-in-law, was public knowledge. Her kindness to everyone, but particularly to Naomi here and then to Boaz. This says, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Now, why would it say that? I touched on this earlier when we were doing the scripture reading. But in Hebrew thinking at this time, this culture, seven sons was the ideal family. Remember, this is an agricultural society, right? So having boys to work the farm, that's important. To have seven, seven is the number of completeness. We know that. So this is the ideal family. And what they're saying is, this daughter-in-law you have who loves you, she's better than seven sons. She's better than the perfect family. She's as good as the perfect family. Might be a, a more accurate way to put that. So this is, this is a big deal. This is high praise. The men in the gate of the city are praising Boaz and welcoming Ruth into the covenant community. And here we have the women also who are accepting and embracing and saying, your daughter-in-law loves you and she's so good to you. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, or you might have lap in your translation or arms, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi took the child. There are some commentators who, who believe this is a reference to almost like an adoption. Could be. Uh, probably not talking about breastfeeding the child, but rather adopting, uh, having a close relationship as the grandmother, almost like a foster mother. And look at this. The neighbor women gave him a name. Who named this child? Not the mother, not the father. The father would have been normal custom at that time. Who named him? The neighbor women. They gave him a name. And what is that name? Obed. Well, that's not a very common name today. What does it mean? Servant, or some people think worshiper. Servant. 
And then we have the rest of the, that branch of the family tree, Jesse and David. Jesse means gift. David means well-beloved. So what does this mean? This means that Boaz and Ruth were the great-grandparents of David. And yes, there are other children born to those families. We don't have the names of those wives, but that kind of gives you the, the way that part of the family tree looks, what those generations look like. Boaz and Ruth had Obed, who had Jesse, who had David. Verse 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Amenadab, Amenadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, Boaz, Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. Just a bunch of names. Why would you put that at the end of this book? This has been such a beautiful story to read, happy ending. Why on earth do we have a bunch of names? Most of which we don't recognize and can't pronounce. Well, let's understand a few things. Genealogies are important in the Old Testament for one main reason, and that's that this is the story of the bloodline of the Messiah. Has to be traced. And, and Matthew picks this up in the first chapter of his gospel, shows the generations of Jesus Christ. And I, I need to go back and clarify or correct, perhaps, something I said last week. I was talking about how did Boaz know how to treat women? May have understood that because of his mother, Rahab. And the Bible says very plainly in three places that I know of that Rahab is the mother of Boaz. But when I said it's possible that she could have taught him it's also possible, and a lot of Bible scholars think unlikely, that she would have been alive at the same time interacting with him because they think that there are generations between here. That when it says mother or father, it may mean ancestor. So it's possible that there were three or four generations in there. This is a representative genealogy, as many of them are. And why? Because there are times when it's more important to have the names that we would recognize than to have every person listed. How does that work? Well, let's say that you're related to some very famous person. So you might mention that to people, or, or my relatives came over on the Mayflower, or whatever historical event that you can tie your family to. Well, great. Do you know the name of every person between you and that relative? I would imagine you don't. You might. You might have looked this up, and figured it out, but most of us wouldn't. So we have all these generations, and we get to Jesse begot David, and we know from the New Testament, and really Genesis as well, the prophecies about the Messiah, who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we have descriptions of the root of Jesse, and the root and offspring of David, talking about the Messiah. This is this is why this genealogy is here. It's to describe and tell us about the line of Christ because that ultimately is what we care about. That's what they were looking for. The believers who were saved, we might say, in the Old Testament, they're believing in a Messiah to come, one who will redeem them, one who will buy them back, one who will pay the penalty for sin, one who will be the perfect sacrifice. I appreciated what John MacArthur said in conclusion of this book and this chapter, that God's divine plan fully blossomed as Boaz redeemed Naomi's land and Ruth's hand in marriage. Naomi, once empty, is full. Ruth, once a widow, is married. Most importantly, the Lord has prepared Christ's line of descent in David through Boaz and Obed 
all the way back to Judah, to fulfill the Messianic lineage, the line of Christ. Now, what have I been trying to tell you about today? What was the main point I gave you? God redeems your life from destruction. Now, there's not really anything I can point to in the story about the destruction of Boaz. I suppose if he hadn't obeyed, there may have been consequences for that. But he was a man of honor, and he was going after it. But what we do have is we can imagine what it would look like for Naomi or for Ruth. So let me share some thoughts with you about that. Naomi left the promised land with her husband and two sons to dwell in Moab. And there, as we know, she lost all three men. And there, she seems to have lost all hope. But she came back. And the Lord providentially redeemed her through Ruth and Boaz and their son, Obed. God redeemed Naomi's life from destruction, from the low point, from disaster, from starvation. What about Ruth? Ruth, the Moabitess, likely grew up in a family of idol worshipers. We don't know that for sure. And we don't know when or how she learned about the one true God, perhaps from her husband, Malon, perhaps from her mother-in-law, Naomi. But what we do know is that by chapter 2, when her mother-in-law told her to go back to her Moabite home, go, go, go back. She decided once and for all to follow the God of the Israelites, the God of Naomi, the God of her people. She dedicated herself for the rest of her life to care for Naomi, no matter what. And God redeemed her through Boaz and provided for her more than she could have ever hoped for, more than she could ask or think. What about you? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? He can and will save you if you put your trust in him. Believers, are you trusting in this God of Israel, the God of Naomi, the God of Ruth, the God of Boaz? Will you trust him in times of fullness and emptiness? Will you trust him with your big life events and then the small, seemingly insignificant events, the decisions you make every day? Will you trust him to provide for your daily physical needs? Will you trust him to provide for your daily emotional needs? Will you trust him? Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we are grateful for your provision. We are thankful that you are trustworthy. As the hymn writer put it, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I have proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Lord, we believe. I pray for anyone in this room or listening online who does not yet believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who can save. But for those of us who believe, please help our unbelief. Lord, draw each person closer to you today. May we trust you in times that we feel full or feel empty. May we trust you with the insignificant details of our life, knowing that you are in control and you are writing the story. May we trust you as our reward, as our redeemer, as our refuge, as our rest. May we find our hope in you and may we trust you for the days that you give. In Jesus' name. Amen.